Now I'd like to introduce tonight's moderator, Mr. Thaddeus Russell. Thaddeus Russell is a professor of history and American studies at Occidental College and the author of A Renegade History of the United States. Please give a warm welcome to Thaddeus Russell. So welcome. So we thought we would start uh, our Oxy Talks with an emphasis on popular culture and what it means in our culture today, broadly speaking. So that's why we have this topic today, and we've rounded out an amazing cast of people to talk about this. Um, I will sure that many of you know the person, or at least know of his name, and it's certainly his voice, the person to my left, Jason Bentley, well-known person to Angelinos. Jason is the host of Morning Becomes Eclectic on KCRW. He's also the music director at KCRW, and he tells me he's very busy also as a DJ and a music supervisor for films and uh, music events. Um, Evelyn McDonnell is here on the left. She teaches um, new media and communications. Journalism. Journalism at, at Loyola Marymount. She was the music editor at The Village Voice uh, in the early 90s, uh, beginning early and mid-90s. Okay, right. Um, and along, she's the co-author, co-editor of five books and has a book coming out in July, the title of which is Queens of Noise, The Real Story of the Runaways. Um, and then to the my far left here is my colleague James Ford III, who uh, is one of our newest and most exciting faculty members at Occidental. Uh, we were talking earlier about how James is one of the few scholars who takes popular culture very seriously. He is a scholar of hip-hop, among other things, as well as African-American literature. He is an assistant professor in English and comparative literary studies at Occidental, and he's working on two book, manuscript, two book manuscripts, one called Thinking Through Crisis, Depression-Era Black Literature, Theory and Politics, which was your dissertation, right? and hip-hop's late style, liner notes to an aesthetic theory. So please welcome our guest. Thank you. Okay, so first of all, um, does music matter? Uh, that may be the first question to ask here. Um, does music matter? Can it change the world? Has it ever changed the world? Some people think it's sort of marginal. I will tell you, and James and I, and actually all of us were talking about this earlier in the green room, in, in my world, I, uh, in academia, in the 1990s, I was in graduate school. I was in history at Columbia. And in that field, no one thought popular culture was worthy of study. Popular music and popular culture generally were considered to be insignificant. You should really be studying what the Senate is doing, not what people are voluntarily doing with their time every single day. So... Uh, and I was one of those people. I thought it can't be important, right? Because they're not talking about politics and economics and institutions. But I changed my mind about that. So I fled history, and I became uh, a scholar in American studies, which is where they actually do take popular culture seriously. So James is one of those people, too. Um, so let me tell you what I found out when I started to take popular culture seriously and started to apply it to my own work as a, as a historian. This culture, this country, was founded upon a civil war over music. <laughs> right after Plymouth Rock, right after Plymouth Rock was founded, another colony was founded just down the road that very few people know about, called Marymount Colony. 
Marymount was founded by an Englishman, sort of a bad, ne'er-do-well Englishman named Thomas Merton. And Thomas Merton was an anti-Puritan. He thought the Puritans were crazy. He thought that their proscriptions against music and against dancing were terrible and ridiculous repression of one's life and one's freedom and pleasure. And so he actually encouraged people to come to Marymount, to live there, and to listen to and play and dance to, and that was the worst part, dance to music. <laughs> Now, this, of course, was a great threat to the Puritans, the people who founded our formal culture, the culture that we still live with, right? And here was one of the worst things about it. He started playing the music that was English, peasant, and working-class music, that was very much dance music, and he also started to play and dance to music that he heard in the woods around him that was played by the Indians. And then the very worst thing was the Indians and the members of Marymount started playing music and dancing and drinking whiskey and having sex together. <laughs> Now, what do you think that our Puritan forefathers did in response to this? They established the very, first, <laughs> the very first militia organized to fight white people in this country, what became the United States. Miles Standish, you may have heard of him, he established a militia. He marched down to Marymount. They burned down all the buildings there. They rounded up all the founders of Marymount. They killed or threw, or threw out the Indians, and they chopped down the maypole. You may know about the maypole. Indians and whites used to dance around the maypole in Marymount. They chopped that down. They wanted to make a statement that we do not have rhythm in this place. <laughs> we do not dance. We listen to music that does not move the body in particular ways, right? And they actually established laws throughout New England which remained in effect up until the American Revolution, making dancing illegal, making music that moved the body in sensual ways illegal. Okay? So that is what I call the beginning of a cultural civil war that has gone on till today. And if you look at American history through that lens, you will see that fight going on all the way from the 1600s to today, people fighting about what they should do with their bodies, in particular, musically. Right? Dancing is always very problematic. Right? Moving in ways in which soldiers don't move, and workers don't move, and business people don't move, and presidents don't move, that's dangerous. Right? So that, of course, heightened with people known as slaves, because they invented a music that subverted all that stuff. All these ideas about how a human body should operate. Right? So slave music established an anti-puritanical ethic and a way of living that has been fought over since slavery, right? And so you will look and you will see great hysteria about music that descend was descended from the slaves. You will see jazz when it was originated in the early 20th century. You will see it being called what? Primitive jungle music that was going to destroy American civilization. Now, I would say, in a sense, it actually did destroy American civilization, at least part of American civilization the Puritans founded. Rock and roll came out of jazz, also black music. Rock and roll, as many of you know, was considered to be <laughs> the end of American civilization. Here's how bad it was. In 1957, John F. Kennedy and Barry Goldwater had Senate hearings to discuss what should be done about rock and roll because it was threatening to subvert American youth and culture and the United States and its fight with the Soviet Union. Yeah. <laughs> so Kennedy and Goldwater did also predict that it would end civilization in America as we know, and I think they were at least partly right. 
One last thing, and then I'll let my experts talk here, who know something about music currently.、Um, at the very same time this is happening, in the Soviet Union of all places, people are listening to the same music. So they're listening to jazz and they're listening to rock and roll. Later, they became very fascinated with disco too. Joseph Stalin and the commissars of the Soviet Union said, "This will end Soviet civilization." If we allow it to go on, they banned saxophones, they banned electric guitars, they rounded up musicians, they threw them in gulags. But the music spread and spread and spread from the 1950s all the way into the 1980s. By the late 1980s, so many Soviets were really much more interested in this music than they were in communism that the whole thing fell apart. <laughs> on the other side of the Berlin Wall were music shops in West Berlin. What many people don't know is when they broke that hole through the Berlin Wall, one of the first things thousands and thousands of East Berliners did was they went shopping for music. <laughs> so yes, it has been deeply, I would say, fundamentally important in this culture and in other cultures as well. And you can see the same thing, by the way, going on in the Middle East as we speak. There are fatwas being issued probably today against Western popular music or. Eastern music that has been hybridized with Western music, they are very upset about this because it cuts through that same repression that we know so well as part of our formal culture. Now, I haven't even mentioned anti-war songs. I haven't even mentioned labor songs. I haven't even mentioned civil rights songs. Right? We have just begun, but I want to establish that music is fundamentally important in the way the world is organized. So. I want to ask all of you, what is happening today? Because I have an 11-year-old son, and so my, much of my day is spent listening to Justin Bieber <laughs> and the Magic Dragons, and who else is there? I don't even. Know. Well, so I'm wondering. His school also has co-opted this music, so that you know they actually play the music at school events. And I thought, wait a minute, rock and roll is supposed <laughs> to be subversive of authority, right? The principal is supposed to hate this stuff. They used to hate this music. Will they hate it again? Is it over? Is that is that is that struggle that began in the 1600s over? James, help me. Help us. I'm looking for kids in the audience. Like this is going to be a podcast, right?、So、that's right. So to, <laughs> that's right. Be tame here. No, the 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 battle's not over. And for me, I mean, I, I do think it is a question of you know what institutions are willing to transgress their own boundaries in different ways, right? So maybe your son's school is is happy to play Justin Bieber, okay? However, I, what I think is is interesting. The issue for me is not so much what institutions will play certain types of music. The question is for me is. What ways of interpreting music do these institutions have in mind?、Mm -hmm. So even for you know your son's school, there's certain assumptions that they have about how they're like they're anticipating how he's listening.、Mm -hmm. That's right. And I think that you know one of the issues that we have to deal with today is that, especially with the, with、um, the emergent platforms,、um, media platforms that are out there now, the question is there are there's so much music out there, right? Some of it really bad, some of it really great, some of it very well known, some of it、uh, much more underground. And yet the question is, you know, yes, the music can have this 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 uh, uh, subversive aspect. But I think the other question is, how are we even listening for that? 
You know, that's the big question for me. That's the big issue. Is subversion inside of all pop music? Potentially. Hmm. I mean, what I find that's valuable about pop music, and for me, you know, I'm thinking very much from the angle of hip-hop, right? Literally any sound can be remade in hip-hop to do something else. Not to say it's exclusive to that art form, but, but to me, you know, the, you can take something from Ronald Reagan, which especially in hip-hop culture, right, you know, people say, you know, Ronald Reagan 666, Ronald Wilson Reagan. <laughs> so, you know, there, there's people who, who really have a, a antipathy towards Reagan, and yet they can take Reagan's own speeches and include them in the music in a different way so that Reagan literally critiques his, himself. Hmm. So, once again, they're listening in a certain way to say, I can take this snippet and use it differently. And so in that way, there is that potential, but once again, it's, you know, who has that, that motivation, that fire to want to be a fan and be productive as a fan, I would say. Right. So, Evelyn, you've seen a lot of music come and go. Um, do you see, I think, I, I, would, I would say, <laughs> come and go and come again and stay for a long, right, long time, right. maybe well, too long, and have reunions. Well, um, but I'm wondering, I mean, I, I would think that the common perception, I think, among, I'm guessing, a lot, among a lot of people in the audience is that Music used to be relevant, it used to change the world, and now no longer. Now it's just Justin Bieber and this stuff on the, on the radio that all sounds the same and doesn't say anything important, and that, and that principals welcome into their schools, for God's sake. So is, is that true? Is that... Uh, well, I mean, speaking of, of, or does it matter? of schools, I think it must depend on the school because my son got a red slip for dancing Gangnam Style, and you know he's ten years old. So there are still um, that's, that's these encouraging to me. I'm glad to hear that yeah. <laughs> at different schools. Um, uh, so interesting um, in terms of music coming and going. Um, uh, I was thinking about how uh, important music can be right now. Um, and, and in the Soviet Union with Pussy Riot and mm. um, the um, outrage they caused and the severe sentence that was placed upon them for, you know, playing a little punk rock song. <laughs> okay, in a it was church. in a church. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, if they're Unitarians, it wouldn't have mattered at all. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and what's interesting... There's, there's a lot of inter interesting things about that, and you know they they um, are very articulate women, um, and they have quite an agenda. And just to like read their did it matter that they were playing music? I mean, would it um, have, would it have, would they have had the same reaction had they simply gotten up in that church and given a speech? I think it mattered that they played music. I think that people mm -hmm. could relate to it, and and if, if it, they had just called it performance art. Um, they would be free today. Yeah, they might be. And it was, in a sense, it was also performance art. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, and they were um, very inspired by the Riot Girl movement of 20 years ago in the right. United States. Um, so uh, it's been fascinating to watch um, that movement kind of go away from public consciousness and then resurface in this, in this global fashion. Right. Um, very encouraging to me as someone who really was a huge fan of Rock Girl and may have participated in some events. Uh -huh. uh, <laughs> may, may have participated, right? <laughs> With gorilla masks on. No, <laughs> I was not a gorilla girl. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think that, uh, and, and I think that the power of those original like, Bikini Kill songs and Bratmobile mm. songs and Team Dress songs, um, that music was just so powerful that it, you know, it took decades, but it, it's, now it's changing the world again. Yeah, I want to come back 
to sort of the music apart from the lyrics as being important, right? Because we're talking about, in the case of Pussy Riot, we're talking about words, right, being certainly important. Right, Putin right. doesn't like those words, but apparently you're saying the music also gives it power, those words power. So, so Jason, so you, so Jason's background is in college radio, which may not be surprising to anyone. Um, and I grew up in Berkeley, uh, home of Calex, one of the, I'd say, most important college radio stations. Um, and that was in the '80s when I was there and listening. And a lot. Of, this was sort of the era of punk rock, and I, I remember ska was very big in Berkeley. And a lot of that music was very, very political. Right, punk certainly was, but even ska at that time. If you look, if you listen to, I mean, all the ska music coming out of England that we listened to, that we loved in Berkeley, was very much political and a lot about race. But I and many of my friends judged music based on the political content of its lyrics. So it was uncool to listen to music that was not political in some way, right? Until REM came along, when you couldn't understand anything they said anyway. So that was fine. <laughs> that kind of broke through that. But um, so. Morning Becomes Eclectic, um, generally speaking, is not really explicitly, I would say, explicitly political music that you play. And I'm wondering if that even matters, though, right? I'm wondering if there's something socially important about music that talks about love or talks about relationships or talks about the L.A. weather or traffic or anything else. D does music in itself, just the sounds of it, is that important socially, do you think? Sure. Good night, everyone. <laughs> uh, no, if I could um, go back um, to 1988 really quickly, which was a, a very big year for me, huge. Uh, the summer of 88, two things happened. I started volunteering at KCRW. Growing up in Santa Monica, KCRW was uh, totally a, a, a downtown for me. Uh, the music of Tom Schnabel, the radio drama of Joe Frank, I mean, it was compelling. It was different, and I just naturally gravitated to it and uh, began as a phone volunteer uh, after high school. Uh, later in the summer, I headed off to Europe with a backpack and a URL pass, which I would recommend to everyone uh, at any age to do. Uh, first stop was England, and in London, um, something called Acid House came to my attention, mm -hmm. and this was a pop music phenomenon in England and throughout Europe. And it actually was a, a psychedelic interpretation of an American music called house music coming out of Chicago and New York. And I just was so interested and obsessed. And this was a new music to me. This was an alternative music to me growing up in uh, you know, Santa Monica. It was classic rock and some pretty predictable stuff, mm -hmm. you know. And I just remember being in London at that time and, and also... Uh, a uh, place called Camden in North London. They have a great marketplace. Mm -hmm. You can buy records. There's all kinds of stuff going on. I remember uh, seeing this uh, dreadlock dude on the corner, and he had a boombox, and he was playing Soul to Soul. And it was so radical, I just thought to myself, I will never hear this song again. <laughs> Whatever it is, it's just magic in this Little moment. You know. And then, of course, <laughs> became a massive hit. But um, it changed my life. Um, this music movement. Mm -hmm. um, I came back to Los Angeles and got very involved in creating um, the dance music culture here in LA, the warehouse scene and what became the rave scene. Mm -hmm. And um, 
I work in that world today. And uh, two weeks ago, I was at the Electric Daisy Carnival in New York. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a, a rave that's actually become so big that it's franchised out to yeah. London, Chicago, Puerto Rico, and New York. My students tell me about this. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and Las Vegas, actually. Right, right. And we're talking about hundreds of thousands of young people over days. It's a few days. Yeah. Um, sensory overload um, experience. Um, at any rate, um, I was there hanging out in sort of a VIP area uh, watching the main stage. A guy named uh, Afrojack was DJing. And I was introduced to a gentleman by the name of Michael Lang, who uh, actually is one of the founding producers of Woodstock. And I was just blown away at first and after I geeked out for a little bit, you know, and asked him like, do you realize what you did and created? And then I paused and I, I said, well, what do you think of all this? I mean, this massive event going on around us. And he said, this is it. This is the movement today of youth culture changing the world. And I just thought, Dude, you know, um, and we've stayed in touch, we've emailed, but it was just so heavy to see, you know, the generations collide, this guy, Michael Lang, and then just seeing him here. Mm -hmm. I couldn't believe that he really mm -hmm. made it a point to go out and, and be front and center at a massive rave. Okay, now, now critics would say that it's a bunch of kids doing drugs in a warehouse and dancing to music. How has it changed the world? Well, you got to believe, um, you know, you believe in the promise of unity. I mean, the, the thing that changed my life about the dance music culture originally was that it was a place where all people were accepted and coming together. Mm -hmm. And um, I had never experienced such an authentic um, connection, you know, black, white, gay, straight. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, everything was, and, and there was, um, you know, there was just acceptance and unity. Mm -hmm. and, and it was within this world, uh, this, yeah. this world had so much potential. And I think it's in that that we, we felt like we could change the world. Yeah, so I'll just say, so in my research for, the, for my book, um, I found consistently over about a 300 year period that by far the most integrated racially and otherwise public spaces in the United States were saloons, music halls, and discotheques, mm -hmm. by far, mm -hmm. from the 1700s to now. If you look at disco in particular, that might have been the pinnacle of integration. That was gay and straight and black and white and Latino and urban. and you know, That was everybody except for what I would call the members of the formal culture, right? coming together. So, I mean, that really resonates with me. I mean, think about, think about your life as a, as a teenager in Santa Monica without that, radio, without that music, without that radio station, what would it have been like, right? And you're in Santa Monica, right, which is a relatively hip place. But if you're sort of in much of America where there's not any other option culturally or very few options, what is it, what do we have as young people, as people without it in this country, in this culture? Take it away. Just imagine that, right? Take away popular music. All, all of its forms, and then what does your life look like, and what does your history look like, right? I think that's a good way to sort of understand why it's important, right? Yeah, I, I wanted to add that, I wanted to second the point that was just made. Uh, we often tend to think about music, well, let's put it this way, when we're thinking in our most kind of status quo way about music, 
especially today when so much music, you know, you can download it nonstop, you can purchase it on iTunes or elsewhere, right? Mm. Uh, we tend to think of it as, to what extent is this song or this album uh, reaching a particular pre-established audience? And I think what's interesting about music, and I'm not the only person to, to talk about this, a number of scholars have been dealing with this recently, but the real question is, how is it that music creates new groups of people, mm -hmm. creates new collectives, creates new, yes. As creates, in this case. Right? As in this case, right. creates new agendas on belonging. Hmm. And in hmm. that way, uh, if you're assuming it's always pre-established audiences with pre-established agendas, then music doesn't get us that far. It's just, it's merely leisure activity. Hmm. But the moment it has that new unifying element, something else is happening. How about a new disunifying element? And <laughs> I think that's right? just as important. <laughs> I think the disruption and I think the romance of it and the tragedy of it are needed. Mm -hmm. right. yeah. Evelyn, what do you... I, you know, it's funny. I've been thinking a lot about um, festivals and hmm. um, how, what role they play in our culture. And um, maybe because one of my students wrote about it and it got me thinking about it. Um, and, you know, I've been to a lot of them <laughs> in my life. Um, I, I worry that um, they are places to be weekend warriors and um, there, you know, Hakim Bey, this philosopher, calls them temporary autonomous zones. And you know, he believes that you can create these these spaces and create your little temporary utopia. Mm -hmm. But my problem is that sometimes I think people think that's enough, okay? And they go to Coachella for the weekend, and they have a great time, and they get wasted, and you know, they dance, and you know, and I've had some great times at Coachella, um, and then and then that's it. And, I don't, and, and then they go back to their worlds, and they've had fun, um, and it hasn't, I don't know if it's, if it's changed them. Um, How and and also, I'm, I'm concerned about festivals right now because there's been some research done about how, uh, again, from a feminist perspective, I don't want to be like the token feminist, but um, that the, uh, the lineups of these festivals are so predominantly male. Um, and, and I don't feel, I feel like our festival scene is not that r racially unified, um, except for Jazz Fest in New Orleans, which I'll bow down <laughs> to any day and never say a bad word about. Um, in, in addition to sort of unifying people in an atomized society, what else can music do, right? After the festival's over, what else can it do besides... I hung out with a black guy and a gay guy over the weekend, and it was really awesome, and now I have these, you know, merit points, right? What else could it... Right. How else could it change? Any, um, anything. I mean. Right. I mean, I, the, the, the hope it's not that you don't just hang out for the weekend and that, and, and that you, you know, are discovering music. And, and, you know, and, and did, did Acid House lead you to house music? I mean, mm. I think that it did. But, I mean, mm. you know, the house music scene was a predominantly oh. black and gay scene in America that you might not have encountered if you hadn't gone through the back door of yeah, London, the, which is the story of what happens with rock and roll and with so much... House of, music, mm -hmm. the, the origins of the term are... What are, again, uh, what's the history of the music? The it's Warehouse, a, very yeah. a guy named Frankie Knuckles, um, gay disco. It, disco went underground. It, it sort of hit a saturation point in popular culture and then was rejected. Um, notably, there was a... Um, uh, ceremony set up by a Chicago radio station. Disco sucks. Dix, mm -hmm. Disco sucks. 1979. Everybody case, bring your records down to the The to Puritans Wrigley. were rockers in, in that <laughs> scenario. That's exactly right. That's exactly yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. no. So true. when it went back underground, it transformed into house music, um, essentially. Hmm. 
But, it all, but in this country, it was African-American. I, I, I heard that it was sort of, the, the term came from, it was the music that people invented in, and played inside their houses and had parties around inside their houses, not just warehouses, but maybe I'm wrong about that. I don't know. I'm right. Yeah. Good. I'm glad I'm right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm really interested. I've also been thinking a lot about disco because of the Daft Punk record. Yeah. So interesting. <laughs> great. <laughs> Grossly understudied topic in academia, disco. Right. Although, really. yeah, yeah. Um, although uh, there was a pretty good book a couple of years ago about it. There's a couple good books about it. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it's also really interesting because to me it's really a global music, even though it, that it doesn't just have American roots as opposed to rock and roll or, or jazz. And that, like, the, G the Giorgio Moroder um, track on Daft Punk interviewing him and the importance of German music and uh, French music and, and of Jamaican music and, dis and sub, uh, sound systems, dub systems. Um, so I do, I'm, I'm very interested in that aspect of the dance culture. Mm -hmm. But I can't say I've seen a lot of politicization at the ultra music festivals I've been to. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yes, so it's, you know, I think you get a sense of how important something is when it gets criticized, right? How much something gets criticized sort of oh. always tells me that something's, something's up, something's important. So if you look at the history of criticism of pop music, um, so guess who the, the leading critic of disco was in the 1970s and early 80s who actually organized rallies and campaigns to ban it? Jesse Jackson. Jesse Jackson, actually, this was one of the major campaigns of push mm -hmm. Uh, was to ban disco. Um, lately, in the last 10 Excuse to 15 me, years... He, well, how, did he, how did he justify that rally? <laughs> well, uh, guess. <laughs> I need to know this. <laughs> <laughs> guess why Jesse Jackson didn't like disco. Because it was raunchy and sexual, right? And, and he was very interested in making African Americans appear to be not those things, right? It was, for him and for many civil rights leaders, it was playing into those stereotypes, right? Again, stereotypes that actually subverted the Puritan tradition, right? If you like music and you're not repressed about sexuality in your body, that's a bad thing, right, according to Puritans. So we must be the opposite of that. So that was really where it came from. It was an assimilationist, mm -hmm. in my view, move. Um, and if you look at, I've written about this for the LA Times, actually. If you look at the criticism of hip-hop, especially in the last, well, sort of in the 90s and early 2000s, again, it was, it was uh, Al Sharpton who led the way. He had actually a march on Universal Records here, asking them to ban, to shut down hip-hop, commercial hip-hop, anything that was sexual. Well, if you shut down any pop music that's sexual, right, what are we listening to, right? <laughs> Not much that isn't classical European music. Um, but, um, so to me, there's something about, there's something, this comes back to this point about like, there's lyrics, right, and what is said, and then there's something about the sound itself. The sound. Can the sound itself be subversive? Can the sound itself change the world, even if there are no words in it. I had a, a recent um, uh, experience. I, I produced a, um, a remix of Bob Marley's Legend, mm -hmm. um, produced the, the entire collection, so had different remixers um, do their take on these classic songs. So um, just finished it uh, last week, and um, we all know those songs. I mean, it's one of the greatest selling album collections of all time. Um, and I think it's fair to say, originally, Bob Marley's message was revolutionary, mm -hmm. um, even if it's a message of love um, and simpl simplicity. Um, and what was interesting is, is I appreciated that these songs, over time, have 
really become marginalized because they're so familiar to everyone and they've moved away from that original revolutionary message. But in the process of remixing them, hmm. I felt like a revolutionary spirit had uh, been you know, reinstated into this material. Um, Exodus, uh, remixed by a guy named Pretty Lights, uh, who's electronic and very influenced by hip hop. Um, Get Up Stand Up by uh, Thievery Corporation. Um, Ronnie Size, who's a drum and bass guy out of the UK, uh, did I Shot the Sheriff. Um, it feels like the, it, like, let's go, let's do this, you know, all of a sudden. And the song is exactly the same. It's just the production mm -hmm. is cutting edge, is today. Hmm. Um, so I'm thinking about, for some reason, I'm thinking about punk rock now. <laughs> I'm thinking about just the sound. I'm thinking about sounds. Like, what? What sounds have really pissed people off, right? Have really been criticized, right? And that hip hop certainly comes to mind, rock comes to mind, jazz, right? All Chris, punk rock, right? Which is also the roots of a lot of this stuff that we're talking about, including hip hop, by the mm -hmm. way, right? There's a lot of punk and hip hop, and vice versa. But, um, you know, there's something about that that's just so discordant, so disruptive, so angry, that didn't fit in this culture, right? What, what, I don't know, I'm sort of looking to you guys, what was it about that intervention by those kids that, was, that changed and that was so disruptive? Why was it meaningful, and, or was it meaningful? That, 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 music, that sound of anger, Well, I mean, personally, violence, like, to talk about how like, just a sound alone can change your life, like definitely punk rock changed my life. Um, and, you know, to the, hear riot girl, just, the Riot Girl movement, movement is a great example. Yeah, of that. yeah, yeah, but right. you know, just, just the sound of, of, of Johnny Rotten's voice is mm -hmm. so remarkable, and um, you know, anger is an energy, it, it carries so much energy, or, or, or polystyrene. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, yes, you know, especially in Polly's case, the words are, are brilliant, too, but just the, the quality of, of that music, just, I had never heard anything like it, and, and it, you know, it completely, like, ripped open the universe, and, you know, uh, uh, you know, it spoke, it's so emotional, uh, and, I, you know, that, yes, that is when music can be really great. Well, we're trained to be nice in this culture, right? <laughs> You're supposed to be nice. Punk rock is anti-nice. Right. <laughs> There's something about that, right? That civility that it just absolutely trashed and right. threw overboard, right? Um, when women do it, right, it's especially, I would say, subversive, right? Can right. you talk about the, the riot girl movement, which I think is fascinating? Yeah, well, yeah, or yeah, the sound of Kathleen Hanna's voice, uh, again. Um, and of course, coupled with the words and the images and all the, and the fanzines, and there's a great book coming out, which actually I just reviewed for the LA Times, um, that's a collection of those early fanzine writings and symbol lyrics and everything. Um, that was really, I have all that stuff, but it was really powerful to see it all presented in, in, a, in a big book by the feminist press. Um, uh, yeah, to, this idea that, um, you know, you don't have to play nice and, you know, that you can be empowered to, you know, be a, be a bitch and, and that's okay. Um, I mean, it's the same thing the Runaways were doing to a degree, but um, they were way too early and way too out there on a limb by themselves without a safety net at a, at a young age. Um, but, you know, I was, you know, a little older than the Riot Girls, uh, but they, they also really completely changed my life. Um, can you imagine Riot Girls being seen as anti-feminist? Um, I mean, the, one of the great things about the Riot Girl movement is that they were not afraid to call themselves feminists. They were some of the first, you know, musicians that 
that, you know, Patti Smith wouldn't call us a feminist, Joan Jett wouldn't, the riot girls were like, yeah, fuck yeah, we're feminists, you know, our moms were feminists, we love feminists, you know. They, but they rejected they the term. No, no, they oh, embraced they, they the term. term. Yeah, yeah they right. were one of the few to really mm-hmm. embrace it. So, um, I, you know, no, I mean, there, sure, there's, you know, certain doctrinaire, maybe feminists who would look down on them because, you know, Kathleen Hanna performed in a bra or Lynn Breedlove performed with no top on at all. Um, but they were... Yeah, that's no good. Yeah, right. it was awesome. So, <laughs> so there's, there's that, the feminist who looks like that, right? Right. And then there's the feminist who's wearing a business suit, right? Right. So actually, I mean, sort of mainstream classical feminism, you know, when, we, when, we think fem- when Americans think feminist, they don't think, right? They don't think right. girls on stage with guitars screaming, right? Right, right. Um, they think of senators and CEOs. So I'm saying, I mean, I'm suggesting maybe there is something there. There's a little tension inside of feminism well, that, I just hope that, that riot girls actually brought out. Right, right. Well, I always, and I always believe in, you know, like, the, the feminisms, that it's never a singular entity and it should be plural, right. which is what right. it is in France or in right. other places. So, right. And then hopefully people have more than one image of a feminist. And, and, yeah. and those, are, those are really girl shirts that say, this is what a feminist looks like and right. anybody can so wear it. So it gave... It actually, in some ways, it, it disrupted feminism, right? It gave it gave girls and women an option to be a, to be a feminist in another way, a very right. very different way than becoming Hillary right. Clinton. Right, and even use right? the word yeah. using the word the word girl instead of saying you know that you weren't supposed to be a girl because and it's a very pop right. cultural right. thing right. that you know uh, and and they said you know they they and they did it in a funny way you know it was girls and it was making fun of women with a Y um, and you know it was it was a loving tweak. Um, so, but I think that they were pretty well embraced eventually by second wave feminists. Hmm. I'd, I'd love yeah. your take on, uh, I went to see uh, this exhibit at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, which was, it's called Punk, right. from uh, Chaos to Couture. And, um, How was that? I'm dying wow. to see that. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, um, I was really disappointed. I just felt like it was a complete disconnect. It's in um, the Met. What were you expecting? Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, they, they, have, uh, they present all of these, these original you know, fashion statements by you know, Vivian Westwood and Malcolm McLaren and people that were helping to, to shape and create the Sex Pistols and the Clash and all these uh, figures from that scene. And then they had, you know, today's couture, um, Alexander McQueen and, right. and um, Comme de Garçon. And I just felt like, no, you know, that's right. not, right. The, <laughs> you know, that's not right. Um, it felt flat to me, but it felt like in this process of, of showing, uh, trying to draw the connections, it lost all its power, you know, it lost mm-hmm. its potency. Was the, was the street stuff just so much more interesting than the couture stuff? Or, or No, the couture stuff was really interesting and beautiful, but I just felt like because the street stuff was born of, like, no resources, you know, um, safety pins weren't used as a fashion <laughs> statement. They were right. used because that's all there was, and it was right. to hold your pants together. Right, right, um, right. I just felt like all of that raw energy had just disappeared. Um, right. And well, and one of the great things about punk was that, and again, in a feminist value, was that it allowed, you, you could be ugly. It made ugly beautiful, right. you know, and, mm. and that it was okay that you didn't have to just be concerned about hmm. looking, so to, for that to get subsumed into the fashion world. I mean, that said, I think there's really brilliant fashion designers, and Alexander McQueen is one, and 
Um, and, you know, I don't, I'm not necessarily opposed to it, but I know there's been a lot of criticism of the exhibit, and I I'm, I'm actually really want to see it. Because Speaking of making the ugly beautiful, um, James has done work on what he, well, on hip-hop and what uh, have been called sorrow songs, yeah. and I, I would love for you mm -hmm. to just give a brief talk on that. Okay, well, first off, W.B. Du Bois, who is, you know, one of, you know, the most important 20th century intellectuals, period, right? You know, like, when Einstein calls you smart, you're smart. <laughs> <laughs> so, they were friends. So, uh, were they really? Yeah. Einstein and Du Bois? Were, I never knew that. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, uh, and at the turn of the 20th century, um, Du Bois lived to be 95, okay? So he was born in the late 1860s, died, like, literally, like, the week of the March on Washington. In 1903, he published a book called Souls of Black Folk, and he ends the book with uh, 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 an amazing essay called The Sorrow Songs, and he's talking about the slaves, the Negro spirituals, right? The slave songs you were just discussing earlier. And in many ways, if you go back and read that chapter, you can literally go on Google and just type in Souls of Black Folk full text and find the Sorrow Songs chapter if you wanted to look. And one of the things that he talks about is that notion of rawness, is that notion of the beauty that comes out of the suffering, right? This honest expression of suffering mm -hmm. and the new types of collectives that come out of that acknowledgement. Um, the other thing that I think is important to go along with what you guys were saying about rawness and ugliness is that Part of the tension and the disruption that I think made punk rock so important, makes it still important, excuse me, makes hip-hop so important is that you're dealing not only with racial tensions, not only with economic tensions, you're also dealing with generational tensions. Uh -huh. And so it's the combination of all of that <laughs> that makes the sound, on the one hand, appealing if you already are attuned to what those discrepancies are, but also kind of, right, you want to repel it because it's actually making you face what you didn't want to deal with before, right? Or, or you thought you knew. And I think when Du Bois looks at the sorrow songs, what he's saying is that, okay, we have like these glee club singers who go around the world. I mean, he talks about how Fisk University started by glee club singers going around the world singing the songs. And they actually made, they actually made so much money that that's how they started that school. I mean, I think he says... They came back with like $150,000. I don't know how much that would be in like 1870. <laughs> but that's like how much they, right. they made from touring, basically. Mm -hmm. right. and, and, but what Du Bois said is that even with all of that support, that's great. He even taught at Fist for a while. But he says, but what was lost in the process was that rawness, was that ugliness. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to mention one like more recent example from hip-hop that brings up that's dance it. and deals with the issue of the ugly and what else comes out of it other than uh, something negative, right? The Humpty Dance. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Oakland. Now, yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's funny because I, I mentioned that that song at conferences and talking about hip hop, and and um, it's interesting because everyone kind of laughs at first, like, where where is he going to go with this? This is crazy. <laughs> Love this. <laughs> Here are the lyrics to one part of the song when he talks about doing the dance, right? He says it's real easy to do. Check it out. Now listen. First, I limped to the side like my leg was broken, shaking and twitching, kind of like I was smoking. Crazy, whack, funky. People say you look like MC Hammer on crack, Humpty, but that's all right because my body's in motion. It's supposed to look like a fit or a convulsion. Anyone can play this game. This is my dance, y'all. Humpty humps my name. No two people would do it the same. You got it down when you appear to be in pain. So, <laughs> I mean, he's actually saying, like, your suffering is your response to what's happening to you can still be a way you can create a unique you. 
And that you can be an individual, it can be a collective, it could be a new nation, it could be a diaspora. Like, it, it kind of works on all scales. I mean, that's what I find is so fascinating. And so, but I think that this principle of dealing with sorrow, dealing with suffering, but in that honesty, something else comes out of it. I mean, I think that's something that's universal there, you know. And I, I think that's what really kind of hits me hard when I think about, you know, we actually needed safety pins to hold our clothes up. Right? That, wasn't, that wasn't decor. That was, we got to hold our clothes together. So I think that notion of making something seemingly out of what seems to be nothing is really important. I just have only one question at that point. At this point, uh, can I take one of your classes? Is that <laughs> yeah. Making, come, in, come in and sit. Making the ugly come beautiful. And sit down. You just yeah, join yeah. it. Making the ugly beautiful. So I think <laughs> this has been a blast for me. I hope it's been... Uh, at least half as much for you. Um, we're done. We are ready for, no, we're ready for the best part, which are questions. Wait, I wanted to ask, like, what do you listen, I, honestly, I wanted to know, does anyone listen to Barry Manilow or Barbara Streisand? No, I wanted to know, what do you guys listen to just for fun? I mean, I'm, I'm either listening to hip-hop from, you know, from whether, wherever, from the 80s to, the, to, the, to now. I'm listening to psychedelic rock. I'm listening to, you know, library records. You guys ever heard of library records? Back in the 60s and 70s, all of these uh, record companies came together just where bands just made music for, like, the entertainment industry to make soundtracks and stuff. Hmm. You know, a lot of that stuff is available online. You know, Which fine. genres? All genres? Or? Funk, jazz, all genres, right? Mm-hmm. But it was, the music was made to fit the themes of particular music. You know, so if, it's, if, if a, if a uh, film studio is looking for music for a suspense thriller... <laughs> you know, you, you make the music to the theme, so I'm listening to that. Uh, that's, that's daily for me. <laughs> I mean, the great thing about being a music critic is that, I'm, you know, I get to, my work is also what I enjoy doing, so I, the same things that I would listen to for work generally, um, that wasn't necessarily true when I was the music critic at the Miami Herald because I was the one-stop shop, so I, any record that, major record that came out I had to listen to, but... Um, so, I mean, I'm listening to the Daft Punk is, is sort of my, my current, you know, fave. On, and, uh, I, you know, I listen to KCRW, KXLU. <laughs> I was going to say, so you, you realize you just asked Jason Bentley what he listens to. <laughs> Do you have a few? Um, have you heard the Savages record? No. The Savages, you'd like that. Okay. Um, I'm listening to the artists that I'm... Uh, interviewing this week mm-hmm. because I really need to familiarize right. myself with them. So, uh, Devendra Banhard, Junip, uh, Trixie Whitley, Portugal the Man, Bibio, and Disclosure are all um, people I need to interview this week. So, uh, all of those records. Great. Justin Bieber. Uh, next question. Pat, <laughs> <laughs> do you want to answer? Hip hop and jazz are kind of my staples. You know, I always come back to those, but. Um, I listen to everything. I listen to pop. I like Justin. I think he's good. I think he actually has talent. Um, yeah, you know. But yeah, hip. I always. I think about this a lot. I often. I come back to hip hop and jazz. Like those are my two things. Hip hop. I kind of. I mean, that's kind of my generation. So I mean, I was really when I was like in 1979. I was 14. So you know, that's that's what I grew up with. And then later, as a young adult, I discovered jazz and actually sort of learned how to hear it at first for a long time. Okay, I'll tell you my John Coltrane story. So here's, a, so I heard about John Coltrane. He's the most greatest genius in the whole wide world, right? And I got everybody needs to listen to John Coltrane to be an educated human being. And so I 
It's like, okay, I went and bought a Love Supreme, and I sat, put it on the record, and I, and I was like, okay, this is a fraud. Like, this, <laughs> this, like, people are pretending this guy's a genius when it actually is not even music, and I have now discovered this worldwide conspiracy, right? That the John Coltrane is a genius conspiracy, but... Um, I don't know, and I let it sit. I let it sit in my head for a while. And I just, I remember one day, I was, I was living in New York, that helps. When you move to New York, you start to hear jazz a little better. <laughs> I think, I don't know, maybe that's romantic, but it seemed, that's what happened to me. And I remember like lying on the floor and listening to the jazz station in, in New York City, and I just like said, oh, there's a solo. Oh, he just went from this place to that place in a really unexpected way, but I actually followed him all the way. So I learned about improvisation, and I learned about um, what that meant, not in a technical way, but a sort of emotionally, so... Those are still, if I, on a desert island, those are the ones I will take. Question over here. If you grew up in the 80s, you know, you grew up on Live Aid, Band Aid, the Amnesty International Tour, what have you, uh, Public Enemy, NWA, The Clash. Right. So music then tried to change the world, which is the title of this thing. Right. Do we really think today that Tiesto or Daft Punk or... Taylor Swift or Rihanna, whomever. <laughs> Do we really think that music can still change the world? The world is changing, and it's an inevitability. And music and people uh, are powerful instruments. And you know, the, you say Tiesto. I'm not necessarily a fan of Tiesto specifically. But there's no doubt that the guy brings together people in a profound way. The energy is unbelievable. And I just think the simple togetherness of it is change, is changing. Um, Small ways, perhaps, but uh, powerful nonetheless. I mean, in, in, in my view, I mean, part of the... Part of the challenge we're, we're having in, in even thinking about the, the, how explicit must the music be about political change. I, I, I think part of our, our issue, when I say our, I mean the United States, uh, uh, in, period. Uh, part of the issue that we're having now is that actually we're being numbed to subtlety. And so I'm not, sh- I'm not saying that artists shouldn't make direct political statements. Hmm. I'm if, if it's a well-done song with a, well, with a brilliant political statement, I'm all for it. Hmm. Yet at the same time, I worry that, that while on the one hand, we absolutely, Public Enemy, hands down, one of the most important hip-hop groups, period. However, I worry that if we put too much focus on their lyrics being so focused in a particular way that we end up limiting what music can do. Hmm. And I think we need to be more subtle. Uh, we need to develop our feeling and subtlety so that we can hear those riffs when the music goes in unexpected places, right? Whether it's whomever that's on the popular culture, uh, um, a mainstream musical scene or underground scenes, right? Because here's the other thing. Sometimes, sometimes we can be so explicitly... Uh, 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 focused on one type of political agenda, we don't even see how we're parodying ourselves, right? Need I say Flavor Flav? Okay? (laughs) Nobody knew in 1988 when Public Enemy was at their peak that we would have Flavor of Love (laughs) a few decades later, right? So 
So in other words, to me, Flavor Flav doing that later doesn't compromise. Well, some people would say it compromises. <laughs> but, but my point is that the music, the music still stands for, for, it still stands, right? It's still valuable. However, however, sometimes being unwilling to deal with these other complexities and contradictions gets in the way of us thinking about the complexities and contradictions of ourselves. So I want to say, yes, we need the direct political music, but we also need to be open to a new way of understanding the political in music, period. And most of it won't be that direct, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Well, also, it's interesting how, how fast the burn is, you know, when a, when a message is put out there, mm-hmm. especially, you know, with, with the Internet and the digital space. I mean, it's quick. I mean, yeah. if you just take, for example, um, Harlem Shake, um, mm-hmm. which was the strangest phenomenon. Um, yeah. You know, I went, I went to see this kid Bauer uh, downtown um, at the Hard Festival, uh, which is a rave, um, last year in the summertime. And by December, um, this Harlem Shake track kicked off as an internet meme. And it's interesting, the track begins, it's, it's the form of music is called Trap, which is an interesting hybrid of um, hip-hop and electronic. It's sort of a great bridge between electronic uh, sounds and hip-hop. And I heard um, at South by Southwest a DJ named Just Blaze, who's brilliant, um, actually played like your typical um, old-school hip-hop set and then mixed into trap and then went more electronic. It was so great to hear. Um, I wish I could describe Trap to you better, but it's sort of like the offbeat snare. It sounds like bass music from you know South Florida or something like that too. <laughs> but anyway, um, Harlem Shake became this internet meme. Everybody was doing the Harlem Shake. They would, and it begins um, con la terroris with the terrorists. It's like con la terroris. And then it kicks off, and the, the gimmick um, on the internet meme would, everyone would be like, you guys would be mellow at first, and then the track would kick, and all of a sudden it was chaos. chaos yeah. And everybody did that. Um, you know, sports teams did it. Everybody submitted their version of the Harlem Shake. Anyway, I don't know about the you know, transformational power or political message of the Harlem Shake, but nevertheless, it was interesting how fast that thing went from zero to 150, and then, and then gone, you know, done. So it's, it's funny to see how fast things burn these days. I sit at a computer and do CAD drafting all day, so I listen to my iPod. To keep it fresh, I trade iPods with other people in my office. 25-year-olds, 60-year-olds. <laughs> There's two bands that are common to every iPod. Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin. <laughs> now... These 25-year-olds know way more about Led Zeppelin than I ever knew about Frank Sinatra or even Elvis Presley, for that matter. I can put a radio station on in Los Angeles and hear six, seven, eight songs in a row from my high school vinyl record collection. This seems really weird to me. Mm -hmm. What is that staying power, and what does that mean to you guys? My 11-year-old son's favorite band is Led Zeppelin. (laughs) I think it's appalling. (laughs) (laughs) Not real. Well... I'm half joking. Uh, well, I mean, it's been said, right, that, that not just that music today is meaningless, but also that there is no new pop music, right, that it's all retread. I mean, I'm not in that camp, but I mean, do you, what, what do you, how do you respond to that? I mean, it, is that 
to what extent is that true? I mean, you should give him um, yeah. Tame Impala, okay. new record by Tame Impala, and um, <laughs> Band of Skulls. Okay. Get, give him those two albums, okay. and that's kind of like Zeppelin, but. But I'll, it'll get him into people. the 21st century? Yes. That's what I want. Okay, good. That's all I'm saying. Good. I mean, you know, there's no denying that, you know, those were great eras in music, the 60s and 70s, and when, like, really amazing music was also popular. I mean, um, part of the problem today is that, you know, not that's not necessarily true. Um, and, you know, there, there were things going on. I mean, you know, music was so caught up with the, the counterculture. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, CDs were, really did a disservice to music because um, they were an unwieldy format and people had put too many songs on CDs and too much crap got on CDs. Hmm. And I think we're still, like, recovering from that. And, you know, now we don't have the kind of shared culture of FM and AM radio as, as much... Um, because we're all dispersed on the some people have said that's a, we get some people have said that's a good thing, right? To, to you know, to Ray, the music journalist, right, has written that he, he laments the demise of the monoculture of the '70s, right? When everybody right. listened to the same thing, everybody knew about the Michael Jackson album, everybody, right? And now, right. because of digital technology and other things, everybody has their own thing and they can do whatever they want. He thought it was a terrible thing. I, I. I mean, on the on the other hand, though, one of the one of the things that I, that I find that's interesting about that. <clears throat> 60s, 70s moment is that while, yes, everyone could listen to the same thing, in a way, on the other hand, there was still more of an institutional push. I mean, I mean, literally governmental policies and laws that demanded That's what created the monoculture, right? actually. So yeah, you could right. actually listen to Sun Ra on the radio. It may have been really late at night, but you could hear that, right? And certainly college radio is still a space where that's possible, right. but when, I mean, right now, what, six corporations own all of the radio stations in the country, with the exception of college radio. Mm -hmm. um, and it seems to me that over time, uh, the, the, the corporate people at the, the very, very top have been less willing to allow, to, to, to acknowledge the, the, the ear, the sensibilities of the DJs on the many local levels all around the country, right? So my, my point here is that part of the issue is are we really, we have to think about how the music may still have these countercultural subversive elements. However, it's being, it's now not connected to institutional support in the same ways. Right. That's right. right? And so right. until, if we really want to, to me, I think we're in a phase where now we're, we can start rethinking how those institutional connections can be remade again. Right? So that we can hear that variety on radio. We can actually create new spaces well, we are creating new spaces on the internet, but we can be more aware of how there are institutional supports that should be there for these right. things. You know? It was Aaron Weiner, um, and I'm a very old fart. Uh, there was, a, there was a, uh, 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 a fellow who said many years ago, the medium is the message. And uh, you started to answer the question, uh, what role uh, is radio playing now uh, not just in the music that they're playing, but the DJ's role, guys like Jim Ladd, in sort of um, in being our guide into the wilderness. Uh, I grew up in the 60s and uh, 70s, and new artists were groundbreaking when the Buffalo Springfield, The Doors, I mean, this was brand new music. Obviously, new music is coming out still, but is radio playing an important role? 
Yeah, radio is, is healthy. Um, you know, but I think for KCRW, we uh, try and think of ourselves as a great broadcaster. And no matter what new technology, new platform emerges, we're there. We're not threatened by it. We're going to try and inhabit it, no matter what it is. So um, we're just looking to spread our message. And I think if we focus on great content, you know, great programming, then it's not necessarily about a, um, an old or traditional definition of radio. But definitely in the Los Angeles market, radio is healthy because of the car culture. Um, but, you know, if you turn on the, if you listen to the internet, we're there too. Um, if you use RDO or Spotify, we've got playlists there for people. So we like to think of ourselves as a great um, broadcaster. Do you agree, Evelyn? Um, well, uh, I mean, I listen to KCRW, you know, it's the default when I can't get KXLU, which is most of the time where I live. Um, but I do feel like, um, you know, we live in this city with this incredible diversity. We were joking before, you know, that but there's 10 cultures. It's, you know, there's just this infinite numbers of pockets of the city. Um, and um, I don't know that KCRW reaches a lot of them. Hmm. Um, you know, hmm. I think it is a public radio, it's, it's, a, it's a public radio station, which to me makes me think that it should reach all of them. But as we all know, in this country, public radio tends to speak to a kind of narrow cast demographic. Um, and, you know, I don't know that KCRW, um, I think, I can, and I was like really praising one of the new DJs was actually playing some hip hop during the day, which is pretty unusual for KCRW, so maybe that's starting to change. I don't know, I mean, do you guys have these discussions? Or? Well, yeah, I mean, it's true that, that our influence goes far beyond our actual listenership because our listenership is sort of, uh, you know, a key tastemaker group, but they're the folks that are in uh, positions of influence in the entertainment community. They're directors and writers and producers. Uh, a lot of our DJs are music supervisors on television shows and film projects and so we're, we're able to transmit the message out further afield um, but yeah you really can't compare our listener numbers to a, a mainstream commercial radio station it's really like I don't pay much attention to the Arbitrons because it's just depressing right. um, <laughs> but we uh, we are not in a league with Power or K-Rock or Kiss or anything it's a completely different world and that's where most people listen to radio. Touched on the idea that like the, the clothespins used to be for you know keeping your pants up, and now they're just a fashion thing. And I see it all over. But it's the same thing with with music, and that is like the reason that these bands you know started having angry songs is because of electronic guitars and with with distortion, and that wasn't available before. And they started utilizing it. And until we started getting into mixing and resampling, there mm. was no such thing as sampling in hip hop. Mm -hmm. It would have never existed. Mm. Uh, we would have kept using drums, but we wouldn't have had this, you know, computer era. And a lot of stuff everybody's talking about is derivative because they're sampling and redoing things and making new music with 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 what the technology they they have. What do you think technology? plays in music and how we experience it. We, you know, we also have to be careful as far as what do we even mean by technology. I mean, Beethoven playing a piano is still using technology, right? right? 
the question is, uh, maybe, so maybe the question you're concerned with is, you know, how do certain technologies that, were, that we don't consider to, to have a long staying power, now, now that they're here, what do we do with them and how do they change the way people make music and listen? And to me, I mean, I, I think that, especially if we're thinking about hip hop, but I don't think this point is just restricted to that, to that particular genre, but part of the reason why I think sampling became so important for hip hop when it really took off in the mid 80s to the present is precisely because you had a whole generation of people trying to rethink their past. And so the question isn't, you know, is that, is this type of technology making the music that comes out derivative? I, I think the issue is, you're talking about an art form where for the music makers, the actual producers, the beat makers, they are obsessed with history. Any, any hmm. top hip hop producer has a house full of records, at least one house absolutely full of records. <laughs> and you know, one of my favorite hip hop producers ever, Jay Dilla, his mother, he passed away in, in uh, 2006. And his mother talked about how he collected his first record at like four years old. And that by the time he died at the age of 32, not only did he know every song, right? Not only did he have all his albums in alphabetical order, et cetera, et cetera, he knew every song on the album. He knew, he knew all the details of where it was recorded, who were, the, who were the personnel making the music, et cetera, et cetera. He could tell you everything about any album he owned. And so the point I'm making here is that, to me, that technology, the, the way that technology was taken up was to deal with a very serious problem, which is we, the Reagan era is not being very nice to us. How do we rethink who we are and where we're at? And in that way, if, if, if artists can keep finding the technology to help them creatively explore the problems that touch them, we still can have great music. It becomes derivative not because of the technology, but when people just use the technology in ways that don't deal with their lives. That's when it becomes a problem. I, wouldn't, I, well, I, I, just, I just think technology is incredibly important and early hip-hop is a, an example of such a creative period of music that because there were these new tools for musicians to play with that you know, created um, this information-rich um, and, you know, and, and, and what happened, how that was shut down by the sampling clearance um, fiasco and copyright laws is, mm -hmm. is also a really sad and um, important chapter in, in recent pop culture. There are two um, music documentaries of, of recent that um, really celebrate the importance of the studio and how much that is changing of late. And one is Dave Grohl's Sound City, uh, which is really his love letter to a studio that he recorded um, Nevermind with Nirvana. Um, but many, many albums have been recorded there, very influential albums, and uh, it's a, a place in Van Nuys. But also, I, I spoke at Sundance with the uh, founder of Muscle Shoals, <laughs> and, uh, you know, he was really lamenting the change. I mean, he had created a community there at this studio of songwriters and performers and made records that changed the world. I mean, it did, that sound. And when I asked him about what he makes of the changes in studios closing and uh, digital technology, and he did not have an answer. He, he really felt sad. <laughs> um, now, he did believe that communities would still form, um, culture and music would still be created, but 
he did not know where that was going to happen. Um, is it online? You know, how are people going to make this powerful connection? You know, and, and potentially change the world. But it's interesting since two of those documentaries this year were all about the, this community space that you know was the was the home for so many special albums over the years. Thank you so much. Have a great night.